Public outcry and calls for police reform have erupted across the country, with movements taking aim at not just policing tactics, but also broader racial inequities embedded in American life. And now many of our nation's leaders are responding to those calls for reform. On Tuesday, House and Senate Democrats united behind federal legislation, the Justice in Policing Act. That act bans certain tactics like chokeholds and would make it easier to hold officers accountable for misconduct. Just a day later, Senate Republicans began drafting their own police reform legislation. That package is expected to include a national police commission that would help determine best practices for law enforcement agencies across the country. But even with similar goals, there are no guarantees, of course, that the Democratic-led House and the Republican-led Senate could agree on the specifics of a police reform bill. There's also no assurance from the White House that President Trump would sign it. Trump has struggled in his response to policing and protests. He's tweeted false conspiracies about protesters, and he's defended law enforcement while also acknowledging some mistakes. He's now considering an executive order on police reform for actions he can take without Congress. Meanwhile, change is happening at a local level, too, with some states like Minnesota announcing their own police reform legislation. These various efforts across the country at a federal level and a local level raise questions about what's most effective. Can federal police reform efforts help locally? How much can Congress do to change the culture and practices of local police departments? And what are the president's goals as the country approaches a third week of expected unrest? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. A Washington Post Shar School poll released Monday highlights how attitudes about police treatment of Black Americans are changing dramatically. The poll found that 74% of Americans say they support the protests that have been carried out in cities and towns across the country since the May 25th killing of George Floyd. More than two in three Americans, that's 69%, say Floyd's killing represents a broader problem within law enforcement. That is a significant shift when compared to 2014, when only 43% described police killings of unarmed Black men in Ferguson, Missouri, and New York as signs of broader problems in policing. This shift in public sentiment on police reform has been quick and significant, so much so that we're seeing serious momentum for change at a federal level. I asked Washington Post White House reporter Sungmin Kim to explain the details of federal police reform efforts that we're seeing out of Congress and out of the White House. So before we get into the specific actions we've seen from Congress this week on police reform, I want to understand where public sentiment stands on this issue and how that sentiment has contributed to momentum in Congress. What do we know about how the public feels about police reform at this moment? Well, sentiment has shifted so dramatically just in the last uh, couple of weeks, couple of uh, days when it comes to attitude towards police and the need that there is these uh, systemic problems in criminal justice systems to the point that we just really haven't seen before. And I think that's what's kind of moving particularly Republicans on Capitol Hill who generally have been kind of resistant to overhauling law enforcement, as we know, and sometimes on Capitol Hill, things don't move very fast. But this time, legislators really sense that pressure coming from their constituents coming nationally to do something and to do something quickly. So in response to this shift in public sentiment, there are basically three federal police reform efforts happening now, a Democratic bill proposed this week, the Senate bill that's being worked on, and a possible upcoming executive order from the Trump administration. So let's talk through some of the details of these. What have the Democrats proposed in their legislation that they put forth on Tuesday? 
So the Democrats' proposal goes uh, far beyond, as as expected, what the Republicans are planning on. It is very wide-ranging. It is aggressive. This is the House Democratic position. And what it does is it outlaws a lot of these policing tactics that we've seen in incidents in the last several years. One of the provisions is that it outlaws these chokeholds that we've seen used by police officers. It includes some limitations on these certain no-knock warrants. It also takes on this issue issue of qualified immunity, which has become a controversial issue as a point of this debate, which is this legal doctrine that shields police officers from lawsuits. And you have Democrats and actually some Republicans who say police officers shouldn't be so easily protected from legal action in cases like this, although most of the Republican Party is not going to be getting on board with points like this. And it would also expand the Justice Department's powers to investigate and prosecute police misconduct. I think we've seen um, some distrust, obviously, by Democrats of the Trump administration in so many ways. And this is one way that Democrats are seeking to keep this White House, this administration accountable. So that's kind of the sketch of the Democratic legislation. It is expected to pass the Democratic-led House perhaps as soon as the end of this month. Does the Democratic package include specifics about police funding in any way? In the Democratic bill, not only with the specific bans on chokeholds and elimination of some of these no-knock warrants, it also does try to pressure states and municipalities to enact all these restrictions on certain policing tactics by withholding funding. So it's a lot of times this carrots or sticks approach that we've seen with federal funding and local jurisdictions. We would see this kind of as the sticks part of that approach. And it tries to address this issue and tries to get to an outcome in several different ways. But the majority of, of funding for local police departments doesn't come from the federal level anyway, right? It comes from local communities. It comes from local taxes, local communities, et cetera, et cetera. All right, let's go ahead and talk about what the Republicans are proposing. At this point, what do we know about what legislation from the Republicans is likely to include? Tim Scott, the Republican senator from South Carolina who's been leading efforts on this legislation, talked a lot about how he and House Democrats may have the same goals to get to at the end of the day, but different methods to get there. So for example, his legislation that he's working on with about a half a dozen other Senate Republicans doesn't explicitly ban chokeholds. It doesn't ban these no-knock warrants that have been discussed, but it tries to figure out different ways to get there, such as retraining of police officers officers, more bias training, de-escalation training. It produces a National Police Commission study that would look at best practices. It also wants 100% participation of local police departments, local county police departments, sending all the data on officer-involved incidents to the Justice Department so the federal government has the data to be able to kind of look at this and say, where are the problems? What's going on? What caused each of these incidents? What Senator Scott, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, other Republican senators working on this have told us is that they are wary of telling, you know, thousands and thousands of local uh, jurisdictions, county sheriffs, city police departments, what to do. And they think that would be ineffective. So they really want to do more of like the carrots approach by maybe offering additional resources to be able to say, do the trainings or send that information to the key um, officer related shootings, that information to the Justice Department. The goal is to see the legislation by the end of the week. Obviously, that could be pushed a few days, but this it, it is proceeding along, and it is probably one of the most ambitious police reform efforts that I've seen from the Republican Party on Capitol Hill in some time. And what have the Republicans been considering in terms of funding for local police departments? 
So what I would do is either offer them additional federal resources to do the training or to be able to send um, send the data to the Justice Department, make sure they have the people, the resources to be able to do that. Or they would withhold funding contingent on changing some practices of the police department or to be able to submit, for example, if they don't sufficiently submit the data that senators are seeking to the administration, then some certain federal grants, federal Justice Department grants may get withheld. So then it sounds like, as you said, Democrats and Republicans actually agree on a lot of what the goals are here. What are the key differences? Where do these two proposed legislations or what we expect from the Republicans, where do these two things really differ? I mean, it really differs on tactics. Like we discussed earlier, Republicans generally, not just on this issue, but on any issue, they are really proponents of federalism and they believe that states and cities can make the best decisions for themselves, especially on issues that can be so localized, such as policing and local law enforcement. Senator Tim Scott told us earlier this week that he's a little wary of telling 7,000 jurisdictions exactly what they should do coming from the federal government. But Democrats have generally um, looked to the strength and looked to the mandates of the federal federal government to enact policies, to enact change. So that's why in their legislation, they explicitly bar these chokeholds. They eliminate certain no-knock warrants, whereas Republicans would not be seeking to do that. The goal is the same. Obviously, no one wants tragedy to result from misuse of these policing tactics. But at the same time, they certainly differ on ways to get there. And I think that's going to be a real challenge to kind of marry the two options, because sometimes you get incremental change, um, and sometimes both both Democrats and Republicans agree that, you know, a little change is better than nothing. But what you're seeing from Democrats right now on Capitol Hill is that we are in a moment here. We are in a time where the vast majority of the country, as seen through polling and as seen through these demonstrations all over the country, say policymakers need to do something and that we need change. And Democrats say we need to seize on this moment for that dramatic change. Now, when we consider this moment and the realities of what might actually emerge from Congress. Do we think it's something that President Trump would ultimately be likely to sign? Well, it depends on what exactly emerges. I mean, the thing that the Republican plans have going for it, they have been communicating with the White House on the contours of their proposal. So Senator Scott did make it clear that he was operating on a, quote, separate track from obviously House Democrats, but also from the White House and kind of the principles that they're working on and a potential executive order that White House officials could be drafting to be released in the coming days. But uh, Senator Scott met with a White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in his Capitol office earlier this week. Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, was also part of that meeting. And the White House officials have tentatively endorsed the broad contours of what the senator has been working on. And even if there is some sort of an executive order, even Republicans say um, that that's not going to be enough from the White House. I, When I was talking with Senator John Cornyn, a Republican from Texas yesterday, who was part of this informal working group on police legislation, he said, an executive order is not going to be enough. It may do one thing, but there are certain things that we have to codify into law, and that's what we want to do. There are certain non-starters for the administration in the House Democratic legislation, most notably that qualified immunity provision that we spoke about earlier. So if legislation does have a chance, it might look more like the, the Senate Republican plan at the end of the day. But how much could Trump realistically do without Congress? What would we expect to see in an executive order from Trump? 
And that's the thing. We've seen a lot of times how this White House in particular has struggled with drafting executive orders that stand legal muster or don't really do much at the end of the day. So that's a big question that we are asking that I'm sure administration officials are grappling with right now on what exactly he can do um, without Congress. Because a lot of this, I mean, obviously we know that Congress controls the purse strings uh, in appropriations language. Sometimes they do give administration some discretion on what to do with key federal grants. But at the end of the day, it's Congress who can say, unless this act or is enacted, the Justice Department can't give out some of these grants, or the Justice Department needs to give out more grants to do X. And that power, despite number of times that the president has tried to circumvent it, that power ultimately lies in the hands of Congress. And I think that's why you've heard so much talk about withholding funding or withholding grants, because that is one major power that um, Congress does have. Well, then, based on your reporting, what do we know about whether Trump himself wants to see a police reform bill, a piece of legislation? It's been hard to track in terms of just what you hear rhetoric-wise from him, what you hear from his press secretary, and what you see White House officials work on behind closed doors. Because we know that they are working on some sort of principles or that they are working on something that's maybe not specific legislation, but it does kind of outline where the White House is in terms of how they believe police departments should be overhauled. And we know, at least according to Senator Scott, that while they are not the same, there is some synergy there between what the White House is working on and what Senate Republicans are working on. But a lot of times, you know, President Trump, what he says often differs from what his staff tries to do. What we've seen more from the president is this very pro-law and order position. The police, law enforcement, that is a major part of his base, and he has taken pains to show no distance from the law enforcement community. But at the same time, much like with the criminal justice reform legislation that was signed into law in late 2018, if this is something that gets the endorsement of a critical mass of law enforcement officials, you could see that being a very persuasive block that helps persuade Trump. All right, I don't want to let you go without asking you what Democratic nominee former Vice President Joe Biden has said about all of this. What is he proposing at a federal level? He had laid this out earlier this year, but this is all obviously coming back into the news in the light of Minneapolis and these demonstrations nationwide. He has discounted efforts to so-called defund the police that has gained a little bit of traction on the left, but yet he has proposed a wide-ranging criminal justice reform that would provide additional funding and whatnot, kind of along the lines of what House Democrats have proposed. And we know that Joe Biden has, during the primaries, come under criticism from fellow Democrats about his role in the 1994 crime bill, which we've seen disparate impacts on different races in terms of their drug penalties. And he has been dealing with a lot of the blowback from that. His plan to deal with this had been in the works for some time, but I think it's becoming much more relevant as as these protests continue and as the national anger continues over, over George Floyd's death. All right. We've talked about all of these pieces of legislation and potential legislation and potential executive orders. When do you expect to see tangible legislation passed through Congress to see real measures to affect police reform in this country? Well, it's a question of if and not necessarily when. I mean, I could see the House passing legislation, like we've discussed, by the end of the month, the legislation that they released earlier this week. But remember, in the Senate, everything always needs 60 votes. And that means Senate Republicans will need the help of some Senate Democrats to pass this legislation. And it will be a question as to whether enough Democrats feel that this is a good enough bill, even if it doesn't go as aggressive and go as far as they would like, whether it's worth passing some 
something that is an incremental improvement on the system. And then there's a question whether House Democrats would accept that. And then there's a question whether President Trump would accept that. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, and we've seen a similar dynamic happen just last year over the gun debate. After the tragic shootings in El Paso and Dayton, there was this momentum, there was this renewed push to enact gun measures, modest gun control measures that were backed by the White House, that the administration officials were involved in. But the president backed off that and gun reform legislation, even modest ones, never occurred. And that is certainly a dynamic that could occur here. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. At the local level in the past few weeks, we've seen some real changes. Here in D.C., the city council passed reforms like banning the hiring of officers with a history of serious misconduct elsewhere. In Seattle, San Diego, and Denver, police use of chemical gas and chokeholds have been restricted. And a supermajority of the Minneapolis city council vowed to overhaul the city's handling of public safety. Across the country, lawmakers at the local level are closely examining policing. Lisa Kyler Barrett is the director of policy at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, where she manages the organization's policy efforts on criminal justice, economic justice, civic participation, and education. I talked to her to understand the lines between local and federal roles in policing policies and whether current reform efforts reflect what reform activists are hoping for. So let's start here. When activists talk about wanting police reform, what do they usually mean by that? What are proponents of police reform hoping for? I think people are tired and devastated by the ongoing cycle of violence enacted upon Black people and people of color by those who are actually sworn to protect and serve the community and by the ongoing failure of our government to protect the community, so to implement some accountability. And so what we want is greater accountability for police officers who engage in misconduct, We want a system or a framing of public safety that actually addresses the issues impacting public safety. This is a decades-long problem that, that LDF and many others have worked to address for many years. And I think the notion that our justice system has allowed police departments to brutalize and in many cases kill African Americans for decades with no accountability is unconscionable. So the demand and the unrest that you're seeing is to change the things in the system which allow this to continue to happen and to reform the things which allow officers to kill Black people and not be held accountable. So I want to talk about how to reform some of those things. And I want to understand which pieces of a police department's policies, funding, culture are set at a national level versus at a state or a local level. So first, how is a local police department typically funded? Where do they get their money? So the majority of their funding actually comes from local government. So city councils are typically the body that approves the budget for a local police department as part of the larger budget for municipalities. And 
many of those budget decisions are actually being made now. <laughs> those discussions are underway now. So this discussion about reexamining or reimagining um, how public safety is funded is very timely. But I would also say that police departments often receive funding from the federal government through various grant programs at the Department of Justice and other agencies. And so there is an aspect of their funding that is coming from the federal government. So then aside from money, in what areas can the federal government actually have an effect on local police reform policy? What can be done at a national level? It's the responsibility of Congress and the federal government to make the laws and provide oversight regarding how those laws are implemented. So it's the responsibility of the federal government to set a standard for justice and policing and safety in this country. And and that's the role they can and, and should be playing in terms of the type of reform that we're talking about. So what are some examples of, of what those things might look like? Are we talking about means for investigating law enforcement misconduct or mandating body cameras? What what's actual specific steps can be done at a national level? What you see in the legislation that was introduced earlier this week is a good example. It includes an accountability framework that many of us have been working uh, or pushing for for a number of years. So things like requiring a federal standard that use of force be reserved for only when it's necessary as a last resort. Things like changing the federal statute that sets the mens rea requirement permitting prosecutors to hold law enforcement accountable for the deprivation of civil rights and civil liberties. So changing that requirement from willfulness to recklessness. Willfulness is very difficult to meet that that standard. So changing it to recklessness, eliminating federal programs that provide military equipment to law enforcement so that you're not having this escalation in force in communities, prohibiting the use of no-knock warrants, prohibiting racial profiling by um, requiring robust data collection, establishing a national registry regarding police misconduct so that police officers are not able to move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction without folks knowing sort of what's in their history and what what has happened in their prior positions if there's been misconduct and ending the qualified immunity doctrine that prevents police from being held legally accountable when they break the law. Those are just some of the things that are included in the um, legislation that was introduced earlier this week and, and we stand fully behind those. As I said, those many of those reforms are things that we've been pushing for along with others that have been working in this area for a number of years. And we think the legislation is a a good first step towards the accountability that's needed in this space. Given that you've been at this for years, of course, is this the only federal police reform effort we've seen in recent history or, or have we seen national action taken in the past? We've seen some efforts. I think this is the most sort of comprehensive police reform in terms of establishing a very strong accountability structure. But we've we've seen other efforts. One of the great tools that has been used is pattern and practice investigations in the Department of Justice. And unfortunately, we've seen this administration back away from those investigations. But those investigations are really designed to get at this issue of systemic discrimination in police departments and really a critical tool to to use in that regard. But the current administration has, has really backed away from using those investigations at all. 
I want to understand how far Congress can actually intervene at a local level. Are there legal limits for how much Congress can impact a local police department? So first, I guess I would somewhat reject the framing of of the federal government actually intervening in in local matters. I think that sets up a dynamic that that is not really um, accurate. So we live in the United States of America in this we live in a country and cities and states exist within that framework. And again, it's the responsibility of the federal government to set standards. And and in this instance, we're talking about standards related to justice and policing and safety. What that means in this country, that's the responsibility of the federal government to, to set those standards. And so I don't really see it as intervening in, in local law enforcement. As I said, that's the responsibility of the federal government. There certainly are things that need to be done at the state and local level also, but it's not in absence or in contradiction of the federal government taking on its responsibility and role. So I guess perhaps another way to ask the question is, would you expect pushback from local police departments to some action taken at a federal level by Congress? I think you're going to see pushback. (laughs) Absolutely. Whether it's action taken by the federal government or by a state or local uh, government. But there is this is definitely a moment that underscores the need for change. And I think the unrest that you're seeing across the country and the demand from citizens should inform those at all levels of government that it is, in fact, time to make a change. Okay, so we've now talked through what can be done at a federal level and the fact that there also needs to be some action at a local level. What steps can local police departments take? What can get done at at the local level to really affect change? So I think at the local level, there are a number of things, right? As I said, these conversations about local budgets are underway now. Part of what you're hearing from activists and in, in, in the dialogue regarding the unrest that's happening is the need for this discussion about how police departments are funded. And so, and really that's about the full scope of funding. So when you hear um, folks talk about that, part of what they're talking about is reexamining what it really means to have have public safety in a community. So we think that means funding for a number of programs and not just exacerbated amounts of funding into the police department, but better funding of education departments, better funding of mental health services, better funding of crisis services. So there are many instances where it doesn't need to be a police officer that's necessarily intervening, but there's a mental health situation or a homeless situation where folks who are trained and, and have experience and expertise in those areas should really be the ones that are deployed in addressing those issues. And that is all part of the budget conversation, right? A budget is really a reflection of, of values. And so what are we valuing in terms of of public safety as part of the conversation. There also at the local level can be conversations about the police union contracts and provisions within those contracts that may shield police officers in terms of their misconduct and the discipline that they receive. And so people really taking a look and getting involved in that process is another thing that can be done at a local level. There are state and local laws that 
also deal with this issue of accountability. And so examining those laws in your individual jurisdictions and states, for example, in New York City, there's a law called 50A that a number of folks, including LDF, have been working to push to repeal so that police officers' misconduct records are not shielded from the public and there's greater transparency. I'm happy to say there was a vote earlier this week to repeal um, that law. But those are the types of things that people at the state and local level should be looking at as we push for this federal legislation to increase accountability. So is local change likely without the national pressure that we're seeing now? How much has this national pressure affected some of the actions at the local level? I think the the pressure and the unrest that you are seeing is contributing to the recognition that change has to happen. And so I think you will see people continue, continue to assert that pressure. I don't think that's going away. The fact that we're seeing more of these accounts happening on video makes it very difficult for people to turn a blind eye or to not recognize that this is a systemic problem. The fact that we've seen a number of um, killings in a very short time frame also points to the fact that this is not a this is not a one-off situation, but a real problem that needs to be addressed. And I think you will continue to see that pressure, and that pressure is a reflection of constituents and citizens who want their representatives to take action. Well, we started this conversation talking about what those activists and what many many of the American people are looking for out of a police reform effort in this moment. Will any of the federal approaches that we talked about today, what we're seeing from the Democrats, an upcoming expected bill from the Senate, a potential executive order from the Trump administration, will these actions, federal approaches, really likely satisfy the American people and activists? Yeah, that's a great question. I Again, I think the legislation that we saw introduced in the House earlier this week, the Justice in Policing Act of 2020, is a great first step and provides a great accountability framework. And it is a framework that many of the the activists and, and advocates, it includes uh, many of the things that many of the activists and advocates have expressed as being needed. So I think focusing on getting that piece of legislation through would would be very helpful in terms of what people are asking for. I would hope that our government could come together around that piece of legislation, because what I will say is that one-off pieces without the comprehensive nature of, of what we see in the legislation or watered-down reform will not address the unrest that we're seeing in this country. This is a moment where we must address these issues strongly and with fierce determination. Okay, my last question for you is a big one. Obviously, systemic racism in this country is part of a problem that is much broader than just police reform. What will it take to undo systemic racism here in the United States? Oh, that is a big one. This is, all of this is interrelated in terms of the ability or or the devaluing of people who look different, you know, people who have a certain hue to their skin. And so addressing the issue is larger than police reform. That's what we're focused on now. But it, it really is looking at how we ensure that our communities 
all communities are healthy and well-resourced and thriving and get at these issues around, you know, equity and education and and in an opportunity in economic opportunity. I mean, what we're seeing where all of this unrest is also happening within the midst of the COVID pandemic, right, which is just further exposed the inequities that exist in in this country. And, and so it is addressing a number of systemic issues across the board. And I would say generally, it is an issue of equality, and sort of meeting the the mandate and the principles that were espoused by this country. I think meeting the a definition of equality that is has been put forth in our laws and through rulings like Brown versus Board of Education that we haven't fully realized in this country. And so what you're seeing is unrest that's resulting from having never fully met those those obligations. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. For more from Washington Post audio about police reform and what the movement to defund the police really wants, listen to Thursday's episode of Post Reports, our daily news show, wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you enjoyed this or learned something from it, do us a favor and share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnik, with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.